work, Edney. I want to thank you so much for following me all the way here to beautiful Park City, Utah, to you know talk about life in general and you know specifically about things about your practice and and how you've seen cancer treatment and especially prostate cancer treatment evolve over the last several years. So let me just get started with asking you about you know since about 2012, things have changed dramatically. Uh, we had the USPSTF uh, come out with their statement. We've had advent of MRI changed greatly in the last, you know, eight years. Where do you see this going, and where do you see the major changes that have occurred? Sure. So a lot's happened, and all of this has happened, and you know, as you say, and really in the last several years since 2012, I think we as a specialty uh, are. are and those who treat prostate cancer are getting a much better sense of what prostate cancer is mm -hmm. uh, from a genomic perspective. And that's really what we've needed. It's, the, it's been the missing link in our ability to analyze prostate cancer for the newly diagnosed patients to really counsel them about the details of what their particular prostate cancer means. When we go back several years, I mean, back even before my training, uh, maybe towards your training, you know, we are all familiar. So we you're all have those calling cases. me old. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's all right. I'll, no, no, no. I'll owe no, you no, one no, for yeah. that. <laughs> but you, I mean, even you go back 30 years and, and even before, you know, we all have cases where uh, we felt like, boy, I thought I understood this disease and I didn't. It was the Gleason 6 cancer that you know, you were following and, and it took off on you overnight and you had no idea what happened. In the, in the converse is true. We've all had the real high grade cancers and we've, we've counseled the patient. This is a really serious cancer. You're going to have lots of, this is going to be a lot, you know, problematic for you that did fine in the long term. Mm -hmm. And, and we, we always are, are sort of feeling a little off balance with respect to, you know, I think I know how prostate cancer behaves, but, but I'm always surprised from time to time. And, and the reason we're surprised is because we've been so reliant over the years on, on Gleason grading, um, which is, you know, the original um, histopathology, um, the visual inspection of the cells, which is good to an extent. And it's really gotten us fairly far down the road in terms of risk stratification and being able to counsel patients um, about treatments. But there's been this huge missing piece. We know that it, there's, there's something there missing with respect to the specificity which we, with which we can know how, how aggressive a prostate cancer is and then be able to counsel our patients you know, what does that mean for treatment? What does that mean for, for, for the long term? And that answer is really coming out of the genomics um, laboratory and the testing um, that we're able to do and, and the counseling we're able to provide as a result. So that really has, has, has shifted, um, to my mind, a, a huge paradigm shift in, in the, the diagnosis of prostate cancer and our ability to really much more accurately counsel our patients mm -hmm. about aggressiveness to disease. We're being able, now able to get under the hood of your cells and look at the machinery of the cell and um, use that information to, uh, to help counsel patients. And it's made a huge difference in a lot of people's lives. Yeah. You, you say, you know, the biomarker thing has, has come up over the last several years and people mm -hmm. are adapting it to, to give additional information mm -hmm. to your Gleason score, your PSA. Mm -hmm. But still about only 30% of urologists across the country have adopted them. And it was a good proportion of 70% of people say they're not using them or they don't understand them and they don't know which, you know, how to use them in their practices. What would you say to those guys? Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, change in medicine is really slow. When you look at the length of time um, in general that it takes to adopt sort of, you know, um, really high-grade recommendations, you know, you got a great randomized trial that comes out showing a new standard of care. How long does it take to implement that widespread in practice? And it's oftentimes more than 10 years. And that is the question. Why does that happen? We've got great science. We've got great new either testing. In some cases, it's therapy. Why is there this delay? Um, and it follows a bell curve when you look at human behavior. There are, there are those of us, there's a, there's a group that are 
um, that are innovators uh, and first adopters. They see a little bit of science. They say, this is the, the best new thing. This is great. I'm going to learn about it, and I'm going to use it. And the center of mass really is the top of that curve. And people are a little, those people are a little bit more skeptical. They've got higher thresholds for the amount of science that they want to see. Mm -hmm. They want to see results in many, many trials before they start to change their clinical patterns. And so that's part of it is a, is a higher higher burden of proof, I think, that a lot of practitioners are waiting for. And then there's the other thing is that, is that we're, you know, we, we get so ingrained the way we're trained um, and, and the way our, our initial practices are, are set up. We're, we're taught very well in our residency programs and we come out and we practice good urology. Um, and when you have a system down and you're providing good urology, and there's something out there that's a little bit better, mm -hmm. getting from going from good to better is, is, is hard. It's not like there's this hole in our practice where if there's actually something we're doing, we have a pathway and it works, but convincing someone that what you're doing is good but here's something a little bit better is a little bit steeper hill to climb. And I think that's really where a lot of guys get stuck, you know, hung up and saying, I've been practicing urology, good urology this way for 20 years. Mm -hmm. You're telling me that I need to be a little bit better. I disagree with you. I, th I still think I practice good urology. And so part of, part of that is just this inertia to, in, in, in resistance to change because in our experience, what we've done works. And it's hard to wrap your mind around, I could tweak this actually a little bit, a little bit at the edges and mm -hmm. be, uh, be a bit better than I am now. Right. You know, a lot of times we always talk about the enemy of good is better. Yeah, we right. We try to make right. something better by, you know, that's already good and people are hesitant to do that because we keep hearing that for years. But that's not always the case, like that's you're right. saying. So in your practice, mm -hmm. uh, using biomarkers, you know, how do you specifically use them? Are you, are you, a lot of people talk about, well, they're really good for treat, no treat, but do you use them for that or, or do you use them for additional information maybe to how to alter how you treat? How you treat a patient? Yeah, my main use of, of biomarkers right now is is making that initial decision with this Gleason six or Gleason seven in front of me. I may be thinking based on clinical parameters mm -hmm. that this may be a good candidate for active surveillance, um, but it's it's looking under the hood of that prostate cancer cell of this particular patient that I'm treating. It did, as, are their prostate cancer cells telling me a genetic story? that's consistent with what I want to do, or is it telling me a story that I should, should shift lanes and actually counsel them that this may, may be more aggressive? So it's really in that initial decision of, is active surveillance wise mm -hmm. or, or advisable, or should we, should we head for treatment? So that's, that's, my, that's the main way I'm using it. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, again, over time, this, this evolves as you get more and more comfortable with using these tests. Yeah. You say, all right, I've, I've got the watchful waiting or not thing down. Now, what are some of the other grades I might be using it, and how might I use that? And it's, it really is a progression. Um, people don't sort of jump in with both feet and start using all of the genomic information available at one time. You start with one test, and you get comfortable with it, and you pick the test that's got the best science behind it, that's got the best validity, the best clinical utility, um, and you start using it. And then once you get comfortable with it and in in, in having those conversations with patients and counseling patients, then you start to look around. It's, it's almost like the adoption of the robot. You know, you, you, you get good at one operation, um, and then you start to say, well, how, how else might I, might I use this now that I'm comfortable with the technology? So you kind of, you get, you get your feet wet first, and then, mm -hmm. and then you expand from there. So I'm, I'm in that process, um, and, and I'm, I'm very comfortable using them in that setting of, of separating out, you know, the watchful waiting from the, from the folks that need treat it, treatment. Um, but I'm in the process of expanding that and looking at in more aggressive um, histologies, you know, how, how might I, I use it to, to counsel about aggressiveness of therapy? Um, and you talk about sort of the information you get from the tissue-based tests. There's a whole other class of information that we get from the, the, uh, um, 
the, the germline testing um, and, and all the whole, whole other subset of information with respect to counseling, not only the patient with, with uh, some extra information about their potential aggressiveness disease, implications for the therapy they may be able to receive, but with the germline testing, um, family information. Yeah, hold, you know. hold that thought for a second. Yeah. I want to ask you just a little bit. You know, we talk about risk stratification and reclassification. They're, they're a little different. You know, mm -hmm. some people talk about the, the reclassification as you're saying, okay, this was a, uh, a low-risk cancer. Mm -hmm. It really is a high-risk cancer versus mm -hmm. it's a low-risk cancer, but it acts like. And they're different. They're subtle, but they're different. You know, kind yeah. of, if you could your thoughts on that because a lot of a lot of tests will say well this reclassifies as a high risk but it really yeah. isn't right yeah I, th I think reclassification is a is a bold statement i think that terminology is very bold and eventually once all of the sort of the you know the, the outcome studies are done looking at how the results of these tests actually impact um risk stratification we may get to the point where they help restratify um, but I, I think really this is just sort of additional information that helps you clarify Risk. Um, so rather than rather than reclassification, um, I, I prefer to look at it as a stratification. So within um, low risk or or favorable intermediate risk, um, is the additional genomic information supportive of that, or does it make me sort of lean one way or another within that classification, mm -hmm. rather than moving it to a different one? Because that's that's a really bold statement to make, and I think you have a high burden of proof with respect to a lot of outcome studies before you, you can say that this test can actually reclassify your patient. Yeah, and I, and I definitely agree with that. Now, I know from previous conversations, you've told me that you, you, your tendency is to use the Polaris test as your, mm -hmm. as your uh, biomarker of choice. Yeah. Why? Because of, of the tests in that, in that space, um, and there are a couple others, um, it's, it's the best studied um, in terms of the validation. When you're, when you're going to choose uh, a tissue-based test, for prostate cancer, um, you want to ask a few different questions. Number one, how is the test designed? Okay, scientific validity. Is there science looking at the particular genes that this test is looking at? Is there science to support why those genes were picked for what they do? Um, and the Polaris has the most robust scientific validity. Those specific 31 genes were picked for very specific reasons in the cell cycle progression, which differentiates itself from some of the other tests. Then you look at clinical validity. Does it actually predict the outcomes that we care about? And so you got to ask, what's, what's the test telling me? If the test is positive, negative, or you get some grading system, what is it predicting as an endpoint? And is that useful? And so the endpoints that we care about when we're counseling our patient is, is you know, what's the risk of biochemical recurrence, mm -hmm. risk of developing metastasis, and the risk of dying of this disease. And sure. that's, that's what our patients care about, and therefore that's what we care about with our respect to counsel them. And it's the only test of the field of tests available um, that has been validated in untreated patients and biopsy samples and validated across all of the markers, all of the endpoints we care about, all of the tissue samples that are, that are possible, the biopsy, prostatectomy, um, and TERP samples, and importantly, also across all, all risk categories, all Gleason grades. Um, and so other tests in this space are um, validated in subsets of those groups. Um, Polaris covers it all. So to my mind, it's the most comprehensive test, it's the best study, it was the best designed, and provides us the most useful, useful information. That's really what all this, the data is pointing to. So. Mm -hmm. I think it's the best test in that field of tests. That's why I use it, and I've been very pleased with the results. Oh, great. Well, thanks for that. I want to go back. You mentioned germline testing. Mm -hmm. and germline testing, different than genomic testing, is relatively new to the urologist. Mm -hmm. And uh, I agree, it's gonna, it can definitely change things. Mm -hmm. um, 
what has been your experience so far and where do you see it going for treatment of prostate cancer and, and I think specifically for you know individualized treatment of prostate cancer? Sure, absolutely. So this, this, um, this whole issue of germline testing, incredibly important. Um, when you look at um, one, of the, one of the main sort of genes that's been implicated um, in prostate cancer has also been talked about for years in breast cancer. These are the BRCA genes, right. BRCA1 and 2, and it's estimated that we're only aware of about 15% of the BRCA1 and 2 that's, that's in the community. So eight, in other words, I'm saying 85% of the patients in our practices are, are potentially walking around with BRCA and have absolutely no idea that they have it. Right. And so it's a huge untapped uh, 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 set of, uh, of information that's incredibly important, not only to patients individually, but potentially to their families, because it does have family implications. These are the genes that are inherited from generation to generation and can predispose to a variety of different types of cancer, um, some of which are preventable. You can engage in early screening and prevent. There are, there are different maneuvers that can be done and surgeries that can be done to, to reduce risk. Um, and uh, to counsel other, other unaffected family members about these things is incredibly important. So I think we're just at the forefront of a really an explosion in, in, in the hereditary cancer testing based on the knowledge that we have of the prevalence of, of these genes, the impact that these genes can have, and the fact that most people most people don't know. So, um, you know, in prostate cancer, we're learning more and more about, and, and we know from breast cancer that there are whole classes of medicines uh, that can be brought to bear, the PARP inhibitors, um, for folks who are BRCA1 uh, or 2 positive, um, have extreme, uh, extremely beneficial effects um, when you have those genetic mutations for breast cancer. We're seeing that in prostate cancer. There are prostate cancer trials ongoing now using PARP inhibitors. And so that, that science is going to expand, and you can start to ask questions based on other genetic mutations. Are there specific therapies because of these mutations that a patient's eligible for and may benefit greatly from? So as you said, it, it, it could potentially affect um, an individual's treatment, um, in addition to the counseling that's going to be able to provide uh, to the individual and their families. A lot of our, our men are, you know, in their 60s and 70s. They've got daughters um, mm -hmm. who may be potentially be at risk for breast cancer. And we've, through these conferences, heard multiple stories of uh, men who have had their families tested and their daughters have found that they're also carriers, had no idea. Um, and the, the ability to have that information and to, to seek prophylaxis and, and prevention uh, maneuvers is what everybody would want for their family. So. Uh, incredibly powerful information. Uh, mm -hmm. We're only right now collecting the tip of the iceberg, and so um, through these uh, through these tests and through our um, educating our colleagues and, and getting the word out through through venues like this, hopefully the word will spread and we'll start generating uh, more and more people um, starting to to look at this because it's, it really is when you're when you're practicing urology, it's uh, you know you start looking at it, you start hearing people talk about it. And then you get interested enough, and this stuff takes time. Then you start looking at the studies, and you go to a meeting, and you see something else about it. Mm -hmm. And then you finally get to the point where you say, all right, how do I order my first test? I'm ready to start thinking about this. And then you do it, and you kind of jump in. But that, that takes time. And so we've got to start the process now, and people will sort of go along that curiosity curve. And we need to help as many practicing physicians, urologists, and others who, who, who are affected by this uh, as possible to, to start that process. A lot, a lot of our colleagues will say that you know, genetic testing is something outside of our wheelhouse. It's not, it's really not our responsibility. Let's just, you know, send all these patients that we think about to a genetic counselor. But there just aren't that, there aren't many of them. So what do you say to guys that, that kind of s deliver that message back to you when you talk to them? Yeah, the, the lack of access to genetic counseling is not a reason to completely avoid and put your head in the sand 
with this testing because it is our responsibility because these are our patients and these are our patients' families. And there's, they're suffering from the development of cancer and they're dying from cancers that in some cases are preventable and a lot of cases are very treatable with a complete lack of knowledge that w is actually able to be elucidated. And so absolutely it's our responsibility. You're very right, there's a lack of, of genetic counselors. I live in Eastern Shore, Maryland, which is rural. We don't have a genetic counselor. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, we all don't have to become genetic counselors, but I think we need to learn enough about genomic testing as it relates to prostate cancer. We're not asking people to become genetic experts, but learn about the, the genomics as it relates to prostate cancer, um, which is fairly fairly easily done. And if, if, this, if you're just starting this endeavor and starting to understand this, there's a lot of different resources up to and including having a speaker from Myriad come out and, and spend some time in your office with your staff um, and do a presentation and answer questions. So there's lots of different media and ways in which you can, you can get this information. Uh, but the, the genetic counseling is important and it's, it's most critical after you've gotten the test. So understand the indications for the test and you don't really need a genetic counselor to order it. I think you can understand enough about family history. Right. As long as you've taken good enough family history, it's an algorithm, okay? If, if, if these boxes are checked, this patient may benefit from genomic testing order the test. Okay, now once you have the test, wholly different story, Specific, particularly if it comes back positive and you've got some genetic variations, absolutely not in our wheelhouse to go through the nuances of each of these and what it may mean for family members and all of the different you know, genetic syndromes that are out there, not our wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. And I would agree, not our responsibility to understand all of those things, but once you have the test done, the company has gen genetic testing available, genetic counseling available. Sure. A lot of that's web-based. Um, through telemedicine portals, but we will we will get a genetic counselor in touch with the patient to counsel them about their options, the implications for their family, and help with that communication. Um, but another question that comes up is legally, am I responsible? Some of some yeah, of the hesitancy exactly to this is liability. You know, every, li worry, yeah. every worries about liability is like I don't know what to do with these patients or tell their families. So right, right. So why do, do I want to step into this and expose myself to to sort of? And, and the bottom line is, you're only responsible for your patient. Mm -hmm. You're responsible for telling them their results. And it's their responsibility to tell family members who may potentially be affected. It is not your re legal responsibility to go and, and chase down everybody who may have implications. You're only responsible for the person you tested. Let them know the results. Tell them to the best of your ability what this means. Give them the option of the, the genetic counselor, which is made available through the company. Um, and that's the end of your legal responsibility. Um, and so there's, there's no real sort of, there should be no... Um, unease with respect to legal implications of ordering these tests. You're, you're covered as long as you have the discussion with your patient and let the patient know others in your family may be affected. You need to tell them we're going to provide uh, the counseling. Yeah. I had a doctor recently tell me that you know, he, he doesn't want to get his, especially the younger patients, tested because they may have younger children, you know, 10, 12, 14 year old daughters, mm -hmm. and they don't want to get tested and scare their 14 year old mm -hmm. into the idea that, oh my God, later on she's going to have cancer. Mm -hmm. um, I responded to that as, you know, if you care about your family, mm -hmm. you will get tested. Mm -hmm. They don't have to get tested now right. because their kid's 14 years old and, right. you know, that it doesn't happen then. But later on when they understand the implications of this, sure. it's a great thing to, to tell them because you could save your child's life. Absolutely. So, I mean, have, have you run into that or had guys kind of give you that pushback? Well, you know, I don't want to you know, spook out the, the patient's family. Sure, and I've heard that, and there, and there, you know, there's the, the kids is an issue, and then there are other family members who are just completely against any notion of genomic 
testing mm-hmm. um, with respect to sort of risk. They, they don't want to know. They, mm-hmm. they, they say, listen, um, I'm going to live my life, and if I get something terrible, I get something terrible. I don't want to know genetic risk. I don't want to be any, any way involved in that. And, then, and the, so a family member gets a test that has implications for them. How, how does that dynamic work out? And the bottom line is they're, they're, just, they're all different iterations of those, those potential scenarios. Right. I don't think we can worry about that. I think those need to be worked out through family dynamics. And you're exactly right. There's no obligation to test the kids. At least you have the information. Mm-hmm. And I think most people would argue that, it, that um, even if, you, if the kids aren't involved, having the information is better than not. You can, as a family, decide if and when. To, to let those kids know and, and, to, and to talk to those kids about testing, but uh, we're not. None of this information needs to be forced on anyone. And those mm-hmm. are those are family dynamic and family conversations that can go on in the background, and, and they can figure out how to deal with this information. But it doesn't take away from the fact that this is really powerful information for our patients and, and for their families. And and I think a lot of folks would rather at least have the information and then figure out what to do with it yeah. than to not have the information at all and get blindsided by a diagnosis that could have been predicted and now they're in a much worse situation. And Most I, people would want that information. I, and I agree with you. And I think that people don't also understand is that they're protected, this information is protected, so if they want to go out and get uh, health insurance later on, they mm-hmm. can't be held you know, to a different level or they can't be denied health insurance if they're changing from one to another by two different legal entities. One is the, uh, you know, the, the uh, the ACA, DCA, and yeah. uh, one is called GINA, which yeah. is a Genomic Information Act, and uh, so they cannot be denied that. And yeah. uh, you know, some people worry about, well, gee, it's going it to increase their, their cost of life insurance, but so will high blood pressure, cholesterol, and the fact that most of these people that we're testing have cancer. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. if anything's going to increase their, their uh, it's not going to be their BRCA status, it's going to be the fact that they have cancer. That's right. Exactly. That's not a big deal. But I want to thank you, Mark, sure. you know, so much for you know, yeah. spending time with me and talking about this. and. And uh, I hope that from conversations like the ones we're having, it really helps our patients in the future. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I appreciate that.